Ladies and gentlemen, today on the Rise Together podcast, we have Jason Rosenthal. He's an author. He has a foundation that he is the board chair of. He's a public speaker. He is a lawyer. Uh, he also, for today's conversation, happens to be a widower who became nationally known after his wife wrote, days before her death, a heart-wrenching column in the New York Times, and in which he now shares some insight about love and loss and living again. In his new memoir, My Wife Said You May Want to Marry Me. Uh, his book shares his experience with his wife, Amy Rosenthal, who died of ovarian cancer. And her viral essay illuminated her desire for Jason to move forward and find happiness after her death. My goodness. Uh, in My Wife Said You May Want to Marry Me, Jason describes what came next, his commitment to respect Amy's wish, even as he struggled with her loss. Surveying his life before, with, and after Amy, Jason ruminates on love, the pain of watching a loved one suffer, and what it ultimately means to heal. Goodness gracious. Uh, we will link uh, his wife's essay in the show notes of this because it is uh, an incredible read, a heartbreaking read. Uh, and I'm looking forward to this conversation because I can't even imagine what it may have been like for you to have gone through this and continue to go through this um, just a few years after her passing. What would the world look like if we all pushed ourselves to have candid conversations with people who didn't look like us, think like us, or live like us? I'm Dave Hollis, and I'm on a mission to learn more about this world by meeting more of the people who live here. You may not always agree with everything you hear, but I guarantee you'll come away more informed on topics you might never have thought to seek out before. This isn't just a podcast, it's a community. And when we raise each other up, we all rise together. Uh, first off, Jason, thank you for being here. I would love if we could jump off with you just taking people a little bit through your journey, right? For anyone who's not familiar with you or how you came into the public sphere, your late wife was obviously an incredibly talented and beloved filmmaker and children's book author. You've written so beautifully and touchingly about her, but will you tell us a little bit about the piece she published back in 2017 in the New York Times and any of your story because it is uh, absolutely incredible. Sure. Well, thank you so much for for having me on today. I'm I'm very grateful. Um, yeah, I mean this this sort of starts with a, a guy who was just focused on his career and his family, uh, living a quiet life in Chicago. And you know, if you were to Google me prior to all of this that you just mentioned happening, you would pretty much find nothing. Uh, I was a pretty private guy, and uh, like you said, this has all certainly changed quite a bit since then. But you know, Amy and I raised three children here in Chicago, and we were looking so, so forward to that uh, empty nest that was coming our way as our youngest daughter uh, left for college. And it was literally right at that time that uh, I got a call from Amy. She was on the road on a business trip, and um, she was not feeling well. And that was very, very unusual for her. We've been married for 26 years, and I can't remember her ever complaining about a stub toe or a headache or anything. And uh, she said, you know, I called my doctor, and I think you should pick me up from the airport, and we should go directly to, to the emergency room. And that's what we did. Um, and it was at that moment in time that, of course, our lives changed forever when we found, based on a scan that they took there, 
that there was a tumor that needed some further attention. And of course, shortly thereafter, we found out that she had a late stage ovarian cancer. And, and like I said, you know, that was the beginning of a very long journey through uh, medicine and treatment and hospice and all of those things, which we can certainly break down. But, um, you know, one of the things that Amy wanted to do before she died was to finish this one final piece. And I had no idea what that was, but here I was observing her from across the room, you know, literally, physically trying to get through the process of writing while she was on some super heavy medication, of course, and terminally ill. And it was really an incredible physical feat just to get through it. Um, and the final piece, of course, turned out to be uh, the essay you referred to, which was called You May Want to Marry My Husband. And uh, it appeared in the Modern Love column of the New York Times 10 days before Amy died. And like you said, it was an incredibly beautifully written piece, just stunning. And that was my first reaction to it when I read it before it was published. And of course, the focus was our relationship, but mostly it was, it was me. Uh, it was a creative play on a personal ad for me. And after it came out, sent me on a trajectory I, of course, never wanted, never imagined, and still can hardly believe took place. Yeah, it's it's interesting because in uh, in the essay itself, there is a blank space at the end for you to write your next love story, and uh, the idea of that—I mean, what a what a selfless, amazing, wonderful gift to be afforded in the midst of the most painful grief that you could possibly experience. And I know that you've said that your future is a blank space waiting to be filled. Uh, a blank space, I'll tell you what, can be uh, a terrifying kind of thing to try and write when you had an idea of how everything was going to go. You, you, you all were just about to start the second great chapter of your marriage in uh, a world without children and travel and you know fellowships and whatever else could have potentially come. What did it feel like having to look at that blank space at the beginning of this journey and it has the, the, the idea of filling it out changed over time? Yeah, no, that's a really good question because the blank space became not just uh, an indication for me that it was okay for me to find love, which was such a gift, um, but I used it as a metaphor to move forward in the rest of my life. And yes, at the beginning, that was very daunting. Um, of course, I was fully absorbed in the depths of grief and really couldn't make sense of any of it for a very, very long time. Um, and because it went so viral, that essay, what happened at the beginning is that, you know, journalists reached out to me and wanting to talk, you know, literally a month after this thing came out and after my wife of 26 years died, uh, is he dating? Is he married? You know, all of these things. And I, I really was not interested in going that direction. And so really the, the tipping point happened when in April of 2018, I had been working on, I was asked to, to deliver a TED talk on the main stage uh, in Vancouver and I wrote it and it was accepted. And so it was a, an extraordinarily emotional uh, piece. And that really set me on a path where I started to begin to think about, okay, 
here is this blank space, Jason. You know, what are you going to do with it? What what's going to happen in your in your professional life and in your personal life and all of that? And this gave me an opportunity to, to do something to pivot, really to pivot 180 degrees from my my law practice and to start to speak publicly about topics that you know are very very difficult and and many of which we don't speak about here in this culture. And so you know that. That helped me to fill the blank page and has for the last three years. You know, I've been very fortunate to travel around the world speaking about not just the end of life, but about loss in general and grief. And ultimately, you know, this has morphed over time as my own life has into speaking a lot about resilience. So your point is is great because it's true. You know, it was a daunting to, to have that blank space. And to be honest with you, it's it still is a bit, you know, I don't know what's going to come next. Uh, the book was certainly a, a huge, huge project and uh, has been very, very rewarding, even though it came out in the middle of a, a pandemic and took me away from being able to tour and all of that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. I would never compare uh, any individual human's processing of grief to another's because each grief journey feels very specific to uh, the individual. I am, uh, we're one month into having announced that my wife and I are having uh, a change in our relationship. We're divorcing. And in the midst of it, I find myself with a bit of a blank page in front of me as well and uh, resistant to spend too much time in the shortest term filling it out because of also grieving what was as I figure out what will be. Um, I, I can connect to the promise of what will be filled out at the same time wanting to make sure to take the time to actually process and experience uh, the thing that we're inside of. Uh, I'm sure that part of any grief process uh, requires that you, you know, don't rush filling out the page necessarily. And it sounds like uh, you've been afforded the time and will continue to have it be something that gets filled out over time. Yes. You know, when, when I first started to speak about my own loss, um, pretty much immediately people um, resonated, that, that message resonated with people and, it resonated with people who were going through all kinds of loss, similar to what you're just talking about. And that was unexpected. You know, I really didn't appreciate that loss is loss is loss. And I have since really learned that. And that we, as a a human race here, um, we all have a shared story of loss. And I I think I can promise to every single one of your listeners that, uh, you know, if you haven't had a story of loss, then you will for sure. And by being open to speaking about it, I think it makes relationships with total strangers, but also with people in your circle, that much more meaningful. Yeah, there's there's something uh, of like many miracles that have been happening in the midst of this own process of ours, where you'll see these bursts of things that you can connect to for the gratitude of what was or the hope for what will be that um, sometimes feels contradictory to the processing of grief. Uh, I was struck in reading the article that, man, there was a lot of humor in that article, which uh, the, the, the essay, which um, felt almost as though there was a layer of joy on top of something that obviously was unbelievably, undeniably sad. Was that uh, just Amy's way? Was that something that just always kind of existed inside of your world? Or were you surprised to see her ability to tap into something hopeful and joyful in the midst of pain. Yeah, it's a nice way to put it. I mean, listen, you know, I was very fortunate and I've come to a place where I can certainly appreciate 
what I had with Amy. Uh, it took a while, you know, because that that grief, man, that's a that's a that's a beast. And uh, but my life with her really was infused um, because of the person that she was, with humor and whimsy and fun. And I spend a third of the book talking about, you know, who were these people behind this essay that that went so viral. And in it, I, I talk about our love story and um, how we were able to just really have a lot of fun together, even in the midst of raising three children, you know, diapers two years apart for a long, long time and all that chaos. Um, but yes, the answer to your question is that Amy was brilliant with wordplay and very fun and funny. And also, uh, as you pointed out, so eloquent and smart and able to combine those things in much of what she did in her personal and professional life. Yeah. Were you able to see what she wrote before it went out? If you did, were you surprised at all by it? What was what was your reaction to this thing that has obviously uh, become something of a viral phenomenon in and of itself? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I like I said before, I watched her get it done. And before she released it to the world, um, she asked me if I wanted to read it. And of course I said, sure, yes, absolutely. And so I was immediately, like I indicated, blown away by the prose and then floored that the that, that the topic was me, you know. Um, but at the same time, you know, I'd lived with a writer for 26 years, even a very, very successful and accomplished writer, which Amy was, sometimes does get a rejection or two. So I had no idea what was going to happen with this piece. And I certainly, you know, had no vision that it was going to go so crazy viral. Um, but she did have the goal of getting it published in the Modern Love column. Um, to be honest with you, I was not that familiar with Modern Love. You know, it wasn't the section of the Sunday paper that I was immediately drawn to. You uh, you mentioned the way that you have made this pivot into having these harder conversations and talking through the process of grief and 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 any of the things that have come out of your own experience. I'm, I'm curious in the midst of as many people reaching out to you after your loss with their own stories and struggles of how they're grieving or healing, was it something that you have created a carrying strength for over time? Was there a weightiness to it as you were also trying to carry and process your own grief or did it kind of depend by situation? Yeah, such a good question. You know, no, I never felt really the heaviness. I just felt really um, grateful that I was somehow thrust into this atmosphere of being a messenger for some of these very tough things. And, you know, to this day, I still get people reaching out to me, mostly, of course, in response to the book now, but um, really sharing beautiful, beautiful stories of struggle and loss, but also beauty. Um, so I don't feel the heaviness. I feel that it's super meaningful uh, work to you know, navigate through some of these very difficult issues. So it was about a year, I want to say, that happened between your wife passing and your published response. My wife said, you may want to marry me. And I'm interested in how getting from A to B happened for you. The, the, was it cathartic to be able to kind of work through this? What was the you know, what was the vehicle for you processing all of what you were, you know, ultimately grieving, but also trying to tap into something creatively and publishing 
that might afford you this opportunity, yes, to, to be a light, but I'm going to guess that there may have, in fact, been also some uh, of, of the work doing some healing for you as well. Oh, for sure. And that started when I wrote the TED Talk. Definitely. That's, that's right. And that was very cathartic. Uh, such an emotional journey, you know, because for me, at least, uh, you know, the intimidation factor of stepping onto that iconic red circle was high. And the emotion uh, of just practicing and practicing and practicing that talk was the beginning of that journey that you just described. Um, and then, you know, because of the reaction that we spoke about earlier, it gave me sort of permission, really, to continue to speak about these things and to write about them and to share some really personal stuff, which, like I said at the beginning, you know, it was was new for me. You know, I was a very private guy. Um, but I, I, I noticed quickly that by you know, publicly talking and writing about these things. I was, I think I was helping people. At least that's what they tell me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So was it the, the TED Talk, the, the published response in 2018 that gave you the seed to take this and put it into a full book form in, uh, I want to say April of this year is when it came out. Yes. Uh, was, it, was it that kind of feedback that you were getting in the year after she passed that had you spend the last couple getting this book ready for release this year? Kind of, yes. Um, it certainly gave me permission to write my own modern love column, um, you know, which became the genesis of this book. So tell us about the book. What, what, what is the, I know that you obviously spend time explaining the wonder that was your wife, Amy, but it, it, tell us a little bit about the arc and the hoped for takeaway that anyone who picks it up might uh, be afforded in having re read it. Yes. In, in the first part of the book, what's been a little surprising to me as I've been doing some press and, and, and talking about the book a lot is that, you know, people are sort of using it as a guide for relationship advice, to be honest with you. You know, I include a document which um, has resonated with a lot of folks. It was called Amy and Jason Rosenthal's Marriage goals and ideas. And it was something we wrote on our honeymoon and sort of tucked away in, uh, you know, in the crawl space amongst some other stuff. But I included it in the book because it sort of became a model for how we lived our lives throughout the course of our marriage. So the, the first third of the book is about a love story and about raising our family. And then the second part is tough. You know, it's really speaking candidly about loss um, and about how to talk with one another before it's too late. As well as to, you know, this is not a self-help book, but it, the middle section really also has helped people to learn how to navigate, how to speak to someone that is going through loss and grief. And that's been so relevant during this current global pandemic. And then the final third of the book is really a story of resilience and hope. And that message, I think, comes loud and clear in some of the things I've been doing for the last three years. Well, can you give, uh, you know, you have an insight that is unlike most people in um, your experience of grief had, uh, and maybe I shouldn't say unlike most people, certainly anyone who's had to process uh, a diagnosis like this has a heads up of the possibility of it having the ending it, it inevitably ended up having. Is there anything specifically... Um, that you might give as advice to anyone who personally finds themselves inside of a space where something that they've known is going to transition to something different and how to make the most of the kind of time that you inevitably end up having with 
whatever it might be, whether it's a partner, a job, a way of living, um, because of the unique experience that you inevitably end up walking through? Well, one of the things which I think is an answer to your question that I feel so grateful for is that we had time. You know, we got this diagnosis and we knew, ultimately we knew that uh, there was going to be an end date, like you said. And so we used that time to have some really meaningful and profound conversations that we wanted to talk about before Amy died. And I encourage people as I speak publicly now to, you know, have those conversations now when you're younger and healthier. It isn't only going to help the person who leaves, but it's going to help the person who, who is left behind. And I think that's the key, the, the kind of message that I can impart. Um, I can't describe to you enough uh, what that gift was like for me that Amy gave me in the essay, um, but also in our conversations. And I'm trying to pay that forward in my writing and in my speaking. And it's, it's proved invaluable to me. I want to know what kind of conversations. I need to know the kind of conversations I need to be having when I'm healthy and, and not, uh, you know, eminently uh, headed to, to something specifically. Was there anything in particular you thought, man, I'm so grateful we were able to have this kind of talk? Yes. Well, for me, one of the main things, I, I had three adult children and I have three adult children. Uh, one of the things that I was so intimidated and scared and nervous about was, you know, how am I going to do this on my own? Yes, they were young adults, but, you know, there were so many milestones and things coming up, college graduations, possible relationship issues, weddings, whatever, you know. And uh, Amy was so gifted at connecting with each one of the kids and providing that kind of emotional space that, you know, for real, talking just between us guys here, uh, is an emotional space that that women occupy. And uh so I was intimidated by that. But, you know, in our conversations, she really made it clear to me that I was going to be okay. Uh, and that I had a great relationship with each one of the kids. And we're all going to be, we're all going to be all right. And so that was, that was huge. And then, you know, we started to talk about, so this is in my own case, of course, but for anyone going through this, is to talk really practical stuff, like what you want to do at the end of your life in terms of a service, in terms of speakers, in terms of music, in terms of, you know, uh, religious components and things like that. So we did talk about that. And then other practical considerations like, uh, you know, any kind of charitable giving or last wishes that you might want. And for us, there weren't a lot of uh, uh, loose ends, but I would certainly recommend that if there were potential loose ends in your life that you, you know, don't wait till the last minute to, to tighten them up. So you're three years now into grieving, even if, uh, and maybe that understates it, maybe there was some grieving that was starting before the, the, the passing of your wife. In real time, we are in a window where the world has been upside down for quite some time. There are people who are potentially grieving uh, their normal having been pulled out from under them, the possibility of losing a job, or in my case, you know, transitioning from being married to not. And I'm I'm curious if with three years of experience, if there are people earlier on in their grief journey, uh, as much as, yep, everyone's journey is super individual and and ultimately going to be different, is there any insight you have in how processing grief for you changed over the course of time in a way that maybe can give some people hope for how what maybe feels super heavy today will inevitably end up uh, evolving as 
time is afforded uh, this process to, to run its course? Sure. I mean, you know, grief, like we talked about earlier, is an incredibly daunting uh, thing to challenge yourself with. And what I would suggest at the beginning is to embrace it, man. You know, uh, it's going to hurt and it's going to be painful for a long time. And that's okay. You know, tears are fine. Pain is okay. Um, if you didn't really value what you had, maybe you won't experience that. But for me, you know, I, I really began to appreciate the love I had and the relationship I had. And so how could I not be so far into the depths of grief? Um, so that will be a period of time. And then as someone reminded me, maybe a little too early in my grief journey, they said, you know, you're going to find joy. And at the beginning, I'm like, no, 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 not me. This is, this is too hard. I'm never going to come out of this. But, you know, like you said, time is a very unique thing. And I can promise you that with time, you will begin to see moments, glitters of, of joy after the, the, the tight grip of grief loosens up a little bit. And so I can promise to you that you will be unexpected, maybe, you know, you'll find yourself smiling or singing a song that was familiar to you or, you know, laughing at a, at, at a conversation or dancing at a concert or whatever it is for you, you know, you will eventually find some moments of joy. And so then you might dip again and come back. And I, I just want people to be comfortable with the fact that, like you said, this is not linear. You know, this is maybe three steps forward and one step back, and that pattern will go on for quite some time. Um, but let yourself experience that joy when it comes. I think that's a big, big message. Hold the grief, experience the joy. I, uh, I wonder, was there anything in particular that you had to do to try and keep making those three forward steps? Were you uh, routine oriented? Were you therapy heavy? Like, it, was there anything tips or tools wise that you might recommend to somebody who's processing grief that were specifically helpful? It doesn't make the clock go faster, but maybe allows you to get up out of bed, productive day, doing everything you can to keep your head above water on days when it feels like the tide's coming in. Yeah, for me, for me, definitely therapy was super helpful. I had not had that experience in my my life previously and that safe space to talk to a neutral party that's not a friend or a family was was really uh, priceless and continues to be. And uh, for me, you know, I had a, a vast community of friends and I would say, you know, let them in, let them in, you know, it's not always going to feel like you want to be with someone and that's okay too, uh, but let people in. And then I had really the good fortune of having a very, very tight knit uh, family that helped lift me up as well. And, you know, it, the reality is I had that proverbial blank space that we discussed. And uh, so I would encourage people to um, press yourself into situations that you may not have experienced before. Try new things. Uh, and I've done a lot of that over the last three years. So I, uh, I, I know there are a lot of people who are listening here who themselves have, uh, you know, family and support. What role did, uh, talk a little bit about how family was specifically um, integrated inside of your, your grief experience, if you're willing, because I, I know for me in real time, man, I've got a, a tight-knit family as well who's been super supportive and friends as well, but... Um, I like, uh, you know, like what you've just described have struggled a little bit to feel excited about sharing how I'm feeling or 
being necessarily even with other people when, you know, the day feels like it ends up being hard. And yet putting myself in that situation to just be in community or be close to my family has been a a super important thing. Were, Were there specific things that you guys did or that you might suggest anyone who's experiencing grief themselves that would was specifically helpful when it came to family or friends? Um, I'll start with friends. Um, I had a, I have a great network of friends, two of my best friends I've known since literally I'm four years old. So I feel very lucky about that. And one of the things that we, we have always done is go to see live music. So for example, you know, there were nights where they would say, let's go, let's go out and, and hear some tunes. And I was like, no, I, I don't feel up to it. But eventually I did. And that was really, really helpful. Just saying yes, you know, and you're right. You know, sometimes when you're around family, it doesn't feel so good. You know, you don't really feel like sharing, but that I think is okay too, you know, just to know that they're there for you and you don't have to always dig deep into your personal feelings. Uh, but just being surrounded by that cocoon of love and family, for me, was really important. Yeah, it's. I mean, interesting in real time. Our uh, our children each experience and process things unbelievably and wildly differently. Did you find uh, that you had to be supportive or connect with your adult children in different ways, or was there uh, more of a universal approach to um, all just kind of being in the bunker together? Yeah, no, totally right. Yeah, they're they're all come completely different human beings. And, uh, um, you know, my daughter was uh, finishing up college. My oldest son was not living at home anymore. And my middle son came home to work in Chicago and live with me for a couple of years. And that was great. You know, so we all connected in very, very different ways. But to be honest with you, we've, we've learned to get closer also in different ways. Yeah. Yeah. It's 2020, obviously. Uh, we are, uh, you know, as far as we are now away from the, I'm going to argue and guess the hardest thing you've ever experienced in your life. And I'm going to also speculate that healing is something that is still happening uh, three years in and will probably be something that happens uh, forever. Uh, Outside of being able now to kind of like shine some light into uh, spaces where grief may exist or exploring creativity that helps support people who are also going through hard things, what does healing look like this far into your healing journey? What does healing look like? Healing looks like, um, you know, for, for me, it looks like starting the foundation that I did. Um, it, it, it looks like um, commissioning a piece of public art that now stands here in Chicago in honor of Amy. Um, it looks like pivoting my professional work quite a bit. and um, It looks like being with family and friends and before, before the quarantine, traveling quite a bit and seeing music. Um, and it looks like, you know, a new relationship, which is, which I'm really super grateful for. Uh, that's great. You mentioned the foundation. Tell us a little bit about the Amy Krauss Rosenthal Foundation, uh, which exists to support ovarian cancer and childhood literacy. I know those were two uh, very important causes to Amy. Will you tell a little bit about uh, the obvious inspiration, I understand, but what, what is the work and, and how, if people are interested, could people learn more about the work that you're doing? Absolutely. Thank you for asking about that. Yeah, the Amy Krauss Rosenthal Foundation at amykraussrosenthalfoundation.org. Uh, twofold mission. On the one hand, we are trying our hardest to raise awareness of early detection of ovarian cancer because statistics show that early detection of ovarian cancer can result in a 
90% five-year survival rate, whereas late-stage detection, which is much, much, much more common, results in a mere 20% five-year survival rate. So there is not a current test, and we have been fortunate to issue a grant to a researcher who is working in that area right now. And the other aspect of it is child literacy, like you said. And because of our relationships with publishers, we've been able to purchase and donate tens of thousands of books that are distributed to kids in need uh, all over the country. So it's super, super rewarding work. And if you go to the website, you'll also learn a lot about Amy and some of her amazing creative work that she did throughout the course of her life. How rad. I mean, uh, amazing work, impacting lives, creating opportunity for other humans and maybe uh, and hopefully saving lives in the midst of the work, but also an incredible way to preserve the legacy of your wife. So that's uh, an amazing thing. Congratulations. And hopefully if you're interested listener, um, check it out and help support the work that they're doing. All right. Final question. Uh, If a listener is currently experiencing grief or grief has been thrust upon them going through a hard season, what is the first step that you think they ought to take to help process this grief? Well, um, we've touched upon it a little bit, but uh, I would say primarily, you know, do the best you can to embrace the grief. And then as that tight, tight grip of grief grief sort of subsides a little bit, um, return to something that provided you joy previously and see what happens. And then take baby steps one at a time to find things in your life uh, that bring you happiness and joy. Or maybe try something new. Like for me, I, I got into daily meditation practice, which really, really helped me a lot and, and forced me to, to look inside and also quieted my mind quite a bit. And it's been very, very helpful. I've just recently started uh, meditating for the first time in my entire life. And I got to tell you, I was a skeptic of this whole meditation thing. And it is a, it's a thing. I'm it's here a thing. For- yeah, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Well, Jason Rosenthal, I really appreciate you being here today. I hope for anyone who is processing grief or who inevitably, because it is unfortunately for all of us inevitable, um, if and when you end up being uh, rug pulled potentially into the grieving process, that some of this conversation today was helpful. His book again is My Wife Said You May Want to Marry Me. It just came out in April. I encourage you to take a look at that. The foundation, Amy Krauss Rosenthal Foundation, is uh, the foundation. We'll link it here in the show notes. Jason, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. It was a great conversation. Thank you for having me. Rise Together is hosted by me, Dave Hollis. This show is produced by Chelsea Harfouche and edited by Andrew Weller with production support by Sterling Coates. Cameron Berkman is our executive producer. Rise Together is a product of The Hollis Company.